So if you've been with us this semester, you know we're doing a relation, uh, series called Relationships Reimagined. And what we're doing is we're sort of thinking, does the Bible, does the gospel have anything to say to the way that we relate, not only to God, but to one another? And, and in the coming weeks, we're getting to re- the idea of relating to a place and relating to things. But tonight, what I want to do is the last kind of, uh, the last talk I want to give on the way that we relate to one another and what we're doing tonight, tonight's called I World Reimagined. And what I mean by I World is everything related to social media, texting, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, Instagram, the whole, LinkedIn, probably not, MySpace. If you're really hipster, you're probably doing MySpace, um, just because no one does it anymore. So, but what we're doing is we're thinking tonight about how does the way we do social media, the way we do I World, affect the way we do real world, especially the affect the way we do real world relationships. Um, and to do that, I want to look at a passage from uh, John's Gospel. And it's actually one of my favorite passages about Jesus. And it's Jesus, if you grew up in the church at all, this is the famous passage where Jesus is with his friends. And you're, you're, if you were there in that moment, you would have been shocked to the degree which Jesus stooped and, and bent down and lowered himself to serve and make himself vulnerable out of love for his friends uh, and washing their feet. And here's John 13, verse 1 to 17. I'm going to read it for us. And uh, here's uh, what John writes. He says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own, I love this verse, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The only person that will never stop loving you is Jesus. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, his clothes, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a a basin or bowl and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, Brash Peter said, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place at the table, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let me pray for us, and we're going to jump in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. Father, we thank you that, that when we think about what is love, when we think about what is relationship, that we can look to your son, the Lord Jesus, and have the most beautiful picture of what it means to love one another and what it means to be loved by you, the extent and the lengths to which you've gone to love us well. Lord, I pray for tonight that as we think about uh, just our own cultural moment and the world that we live in and, and the confusing parts about it and the great parts about it, you would give us wisdom. Lord, I thank you that you are a God who says you love to give wisdom to those who ask. And Lord, we ask you, I ask you on behalf of my friends and behalf of myself, you would give us great wisdom tonight. 
And Lord, I ask this in the name of Jesus, uh, who really has loved us, not only loved us to the end of his life, but loves us, will love us to the end of our own. We thank you for that. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Uh, so we're using Beyonce songs to uh, do our series, and um, tonight's a little bit cheap because it's Beyonce. It's really Lady Gaga, but Beyonce's in there. It's telephone, and uh, here's what she says. Uh, just a second. It's my favorite song they're going to play, and I cannot text you with a drink in my hand, eh? You should have made some plans with me. You knew that I was free, and now you won't stop calling me, but I'm kind of busy. She's great at rhyming. I love that scene, though, because it's a picture of the complexity of the world we live in. If you're like me, you, you always have your phone on your person, to say that awkwardly, either in your hand or in your pocket or somewhere on your, on your body. Uh, we live in a world that is, can be, that we're sort of, uh, technology is just part of the world we live in and the way that we do it and the way that we text, the way that we do Facebook, twi- Twitter, all that good stuff. Um, it makes me think of, I love, I think one of the most profound lines in, in recent movie history is in social network and Justin Timberlake's role, and he has that line that I think nails kind of the time that we live in, especially when it comes to how we do relationships. When he said, the reality is we used to live in farms, and then we lived in cities, and now we live on the internet. And when I was watching Social Network uh, and listening to them say that, I thought, yes, that's exactly, he's capturing exactly what, not only that we do, but we're trying to do is that we have these lots. If you're like me, you, you have your, the real you, the real world you, and then you have sort of the I world you, the one that's on Facebook, the one that's on Twitter, the one that's on, for me, Pinterest. I am blazing the, 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 the guys. I'm not ashamed to say it. I'm just going to say it, that I'm a guy and I'm, and I'm on Pinterest, and I'm not ashamed to say that. It's my time to come out and be proud of that fact. Um, but here's the question that they're asking tonight is does the way we live in the I world, does the way we do social media, does the way we text and, and, and the way that we communicate, does it affect, how does it affect the way we do relationships? How does it affect your friendships? How does it affect the way you date? How does it affect the way you do romantic relationships? How does it affect the way you do, so basically what we're saying is how does the I world affect the way you do the R world? Can I say it like that? How does the internet world affect the way that you do the real world, right? And here's sort of my, my thesis for the night, is, is as Christians... Jesus has to change the equation of the way we do everything. So in some sense, like I, I don't want you to hear me saying it all tonight. Let me just say this before I forget to say it. I don't at all want you to hear me saying, oh, these things are, are not some things that we should be involved with and do as Christians. You know, some of, some of the churches we grew up in, we knew something was wrong because fundamentally it felt like they were saying for us to, to remove or to distance ourselves from the world instead of to embrace it in a way that's, that's different and loving and embrace it in a way that's godly. And what I want to do tonight is sort of say, I want to ask the question, is as we do these things, as we do Facebook, as we do Twitter, as we do Pinterest, Instagram, all of that, as we do the I world, one of two things is happening. Either it's going to, is the way we do it enhancing our real world relationships, or is the way we do our world a way of escaping intimacy and escaping the hard the hard reality that is relationship? Because the reality is, y'all, relationships are hard. And if you haven't figured it out in life yet, you're going to. And college is a time for a lot of us where we figure out doing relationship. And in some ways, after college is even harder. One of my best friends likes to say that the loneliest year of your life is the year after you graduate college, which for my seniors, I hate to, let me just brace you for that. Because here, you sort of at least have proximity with each other. But once you're in the real world, there's a way you have to be intentional with your relationships, and that is hard. But even doing face-to-face relationship is hard. Because vulnerability is hard, and we don't love vulnerability because it's risky and it feels risky. 
And that's why we gravitate. That's why, that's why I prefer, for example, I don't know if you're like me, but that's why I, I hate it when people call, A, call me. The worst is if you leave a voicemail for me because it's just like it really does. I don't know how to explain it, but I, I literally changed my, my voicemail message where I said, you could leave a voicemail or you could text me or email me. And so a guy just left a message for me. He was like, does this mean you don't check your voicemails? And I'm like, yes, you understand it. But the part of the reason that I love texting is because intimacy and especially vulnerability makes me uncomfortable. And I think, I think most of you are actually the same. So here are the three things I think when we think about our world versus real world. Here are the three temptations. Here are the three dangers. Here are the three things that we've got to take into account as we think about the way we do, we do our world, okay? Uh, it's simple. It's intimacy, integrity, and identity. That's what's at stake. Intimacy, face-to-face, looking you people in the eyes, knowing how to have a conversation, Opening up, being vulnerable. Integrity, being the same person regardless of who you're with. Being the same person with the same convictions, with every crowd, with every person, that's integrity. And then lastly, identity. Having a a good, solid sense of who you are as a Christian in Jesus. Okay, So those three things are what's at stake. We're going to take them one one by one. So first, stay with me for a little bit about identity, right? And about intimacy. And here's what I want to sort of say. Is that intimacy is this idea of I'm, I'm, I'm willing to make myself vulnerable. I'm willing to be known. The real me. I'm willing to let you know what's really in my heart. I'm willing to let you know what's really in my mind. And this is what I love. And this is what's, I think, awkward about our passage in John 13. Is the disciples, part of, if you know the scene, part of what's awkward is they knew as they went into this dinner that because they rented this room, there wasn't a servant there. And, like, we don't understand that in this time they walk barefoot with, like, sandals throughout the streets. And it's not streets that are paved like ours. It's streets with all kinds of nasty garbage, lettuce, food, rotting stuff, uh, rotting animals, stuff, you know, all over the streets. And so their feet were, you know, as imagine as dirty as your chacos ever get, their feet were unbelievably just nasty. And so custom for every dinner was they had a servant that would wash the feet. You sort of, maybe you know this about John 13. So what's interesting is they get into this upper room, and the question, the awkward question going around, the awkwardness that's happening is who's going to wash the feet? If you know anything about these disciples, they're proud. They're like us. They're proud. They misunderstand Jesus all the time. They don't really love each other. They're selfish. They're really looking out. They're, they're doing life in a way like us where it's all about them. And so none of them are willing to do what Jesus does, which is to strip to take off his clothes so he doesn't get them dirty, put in a towel, fill a bowl with water, and begin washing feet. None of, they're afraid of being vulnerable. They're afraid of lowering, here's the way you want to see it. They're afraid of lowering themselves to a place where they're in a posture where they can serve one another. Interesting thing about the difference in our culture, I just learned this recently. I'm a movie guy, and I didn't realize this, but did you know the difference between Western movies and Eastern movies? I learned this recently listening to a podcast. This is how nerdy I can get with my hobbies. Is that in Western movies, if you notice this, it's fascinating to notice it from, from here out when you watch a movie. The angle of the camera always in Western movies is from the top down. So if you ever notice, next movie you go to, notice that it's, very, it's all, almost always common for the way a movie is filmed for it to be this position. I'm looking down. I'm looking over. And it's fascinating because I didn't learn this, but apparently in Eastern movie culture, the, the, the camera is almost always from a position of looking up. Where I, there's a sense of which I'm, I'm with you and, and I'm, I'm willing to kneel myself and make myself vulnerable to you. It's fascinating that we as Americans in particular hate the idea 
we hate the idea, not just of serving people, we hate the idea of being under. We hate the idea of, of being in a position where someone could misuse us, of being in a position where someone could take advantage of us. We hate making ourselves vulnerable. And I, and I think, why? Because when you make yourself vulnerable, you open yourself up to rejection. This is as simple as it is. When you, part of why we hate being vulnerable is we hate, we, we are terrified, if you're like me, you're terrified of rejection because you've felt it. Maybe you felt it from your parents. Maybe you felt it from friends in middle school. Y'all listen, we're all trying to get out, like grow past seventh grade, right? With seventh grade us is still, still here. We have those experiences. We can remember what that girl said to us in PE and how she shamed us in front of, ugh, the worst. It's a long story, but I'm working out counseling. But we fear, here's the thing, here's why we don't, here's where we mess up intimacy, is that we, not only we fear rejection, but we love control. We love control because we fear rejection. This is why I prefer you to text me. This is why it's easier for me. Listen, my wife and I just went to Pauly's. It's great for fall break. But we had this fight that was fascinating because basically at one point in the fight I said, you didn't even read the blog post I shared on Facebook. How, do you, how can you say that you know me? Like literally those words came out of my mouth. And I realized as I was saying them how ridiculous it sounded. You didn't, even, you didn't read my blog post on Facebook. How can you know me? And yeah, she's like, I've been married to you for 10 years. Like I know you. And in that moment I realized it's easier for me to share share myself on Facebook than to share myself with my wife. It's easier for you to share yourself on Twitter. That's why, that's why we all have this experience when you meet someone and then they give you their, your, their Twitter handle and then you read their Twitter, you're like, is this the same person? Like, the things that they're saying, they would never say, that's what's fun about Twitter is you say things you would never say in real life. But that's also what's weird about Twitter is why do we feel like we can say these things to everybody anonymously, kind of, and yet not say it to one another face-to-face over tacos, Right? It's a weird experience, but part of this is we're terrified of intimacy. So what we do instead of doing real intimacy is we do false intimacy, right? That's what we're doing. And and the way we do our world can be a way. So the question for you is, does the way you do our world, does the way you do all those things enhance your real life intimacy or try to escape it? Are you trying to control and manage people's perception of you? So that they don't know the, you're the real you. Are you trying to control and keep people at a distance? Because the reality of face-to-face is there's nothing between you and me. When we're talking over tacos, there's tacos between us. But there's nothing between. We're face-to-face. We're in it. But when I'm on Facebook, there's something between us. Or when I'm texting you, there's something between us. And that feels a little safer. It's fascinating. There was an article in the Huffington Post uh, this past week. And it was a mom who had to take her phone from her uh, 16-year-old daughter or Teenage daughter, I'm not sure how old she was. And she's talking about how fascinating it is, how dependent we are, especially in texting, in our relationships. And she just observed with her daughter, just the, kind of this, almost as a little family experiment, what it would be like for her daughter to not have her phone for like a week. And she said her daughter was a great experience because her daughter ended up actually like talking to people face to face. But as she, as she closed the article, here's what she says. And she uses one of her daughter's friends as an example. But first she says, wake up, people. This needless, incessant phone-to-phone contact is ruining relationships. And then she shares what one of her uh, daughter's friends had said. She's, the friend of the daughter said, The other day, my boyfriend and I texted each other all class period long. But when we saw each other, and some of you had this experience, when we saw each other afterwards, it was weirdly awkward because we realized we had nothing to say. Like nothing. And then she th- she's thinking out loud. She says, What if all this texting stuff 
develops into, into some kind of cyber reality. And then she closed the article and she said when she finally checked her daughter's phone, there were 306 missed texts. Which is all, sounds like a lot to me. Like, that would be my nightmare. <laughs> I would be, like, melting down for days. Uh, and not respond to any of them, as those of you who know me well know. But here's her point. Her point is, part of what we're doing is we're afraid of vulnerability. So part of what we do is we, we, we keep each other at a distance. Um, that's why if you saw Louis C.K.'s interview, uh, Louis C.K. is one of my favorite comedians. He had this great interview with Conan where he sort of said he was talking about why his young daughters, his 12, 13-year-old daughters don't have cell phones. And he said one of the reasons is, he gives this great example where he says, when you, when you are at school and you, have, you call someone fat to their face, you have to see what it does to them. But when you say, when you call someone fat on the internet, you get the good parts of saying it, but you get none of the bad parts. So you don't, at least you guys point is you don't learn empathy, which is crucial if you're going to have real relationships, you have to learn how to empathize with one another. That's so true, but part of what he's saying is, listen, part of what we do in the I world is we distance ourselves from the hurt and rejection. We distance ourselves from the things that are hard about relationships, right? So one of the things that we do is, is we, we, avoid, um, we avoid intimacy. But the second thing that, that's sort of dangerous for us is not only do we avoid intimacy, not only can avoiding intimacy be a temptation, but we also it can mess up and, and we, the temptation is to not be people of integrity, this is one of the dangers of the I world. One of the temptations is we lose our integrity. We lose being the same person with the same convictions, regardless of who we're with and regardless of what they think. We know what we think and we have strong convictions is the word. That's what integrity is, right? And that's what's interesting, again, about these disciples is they enter into this room and you get the sense as they look at each other. Just put yourself there and you're realizing they're looking at each other. And what's interesting is as they're looking at each other, Part of what's happening is they're all afraid of what each other thinks. They're thinking, if I'm the one who becomes the servant, what will, the, what will my friends think of me? And this is one of the things that I think is actually so weird, especially about the internet, is the sense of we're hyper, hyper, hyper aware, not of what we think, what we believe, but we're hyper, hyper aware of what everyone around us and everyone we're interacting with thinks and believes, especially about what they think of us. This is why the greatest threat to being a person of integrity is coolness. Coolness is the biggest threat to being someone of, of, of being a person of integrity. Why? Because you're constantly, when you're thinking about coolness, you're constantly thinking about not what you think, and especially as a Christian, not what God thinks, but you're thinking about what everyone else thinks, and especially what they think of you. And so part of what is interesting is, part of what happens with, with the eye world is we're afraid of being judged. We're afraid of people like judging our convictions. We're afraid of people judging our decisions. We're afraid of people judging our lifestyle, especially a lifestyle of holiness that the Bible calls us to. It's interesting, Paul, one of my favorite passages, and especially if you're a person that wrestles with approval, we call it approval idolatry, where you live to be liked. Like You don't live to love others. You live to be liked by others. And that's one of the greatest struggles of my life. And, I, and the passage that Paul says in, in first, first Corinthians 4 is so fascinating because he basically says, listen, this is what integrity is, by the way. He says, listen, I don't care what you think about me. I don't even care what I think about me because all that matters is what God thinks about me and I know what he thinks about me. And the beauty is, he's saying, because I know in Christ, I've already been judged Part of what the cross is, is, is Christ dies the death I deserve to die. I've been judged in Jesus' death. 
And so all that remains for me, the reason Paul can say in Romans 8, 1, there's now no condemnation is I've already died with Christ. I've already been, everything that is bad about me, everything that I hate about myself, everything that is bad about you, and everything that you hate about yourself has been judged and died with Christ. He bore your judgment in your place. And when he rose from the grave, all that was left for you in God's eyes, and what God thinks about you is a smile. Not a frown. A lot of you are living under the frown of God. And I want to say to you, you're not living under the gospel. Because the gospel frees you to live under the smile of God, which is to say, God has already, Jesus has already come and he's died in your place. And he's he's at the right hand of God interceding for you. You know, I mean, what that means is is he is your best friend. He's at the right hand of God. And he says, I love this person to death and they're with me. They're with me now. And when you know that, then you can say, I don't care what you think about me. I don't care what I think about me because I know what God thinks about me. And he loves me. And I'm accepted. And I'm, what I'm saying is I'm cool with him. Part of, the, part of the temptation, listen, some of you try to dress so cool. You're on Instagram. And we should just change the name of Instagram to look at how cool I am Instagram because that's all it is, right? Look at what I'm eating and look at what I'm drinking and look at what I'm doing. Yeah, I'm at the fair. I mean, this is the fair. Isn't that cool? Like, yeah, I went to Tennessee. Yeah, I mean, like all this stuff where we're like, yeah, I was at the away game. Yeah, I was with this person. I mean, like, I'm, listen, I do it too. We all, it's what Instagram is for, right? Like, hey, look how cool I am. But if you're ever going to be freed from that, because the reality is Jesus doesn't call you to be cool. He calls you to be holy. If you're ever going to say, I don't care about being cool, I care about being holy, then you're going to say, I know that I'm cool with him. Can I say it that way? It sounds kind of cheesy, but I, I know that I'm cool. First of all, I know that no one's cooler than Jesus. Not in some, like, Jesus is my homeboy way. Like, no. No. But in a way that's like, no one is, no one is, no one is more fun to be with Jesus, which is why, incidentally, Jesus got invited to all the parties. And yet, when Jesus did all the parties, he was completely holy. Right? And that, like, you, that's not how you do parties. You do parties and you're terrified of what everyone there thinks about you. And ironically, you're terrified of those pictures from those parties being on Facebook. This is a, a fun kind of thing to think about. The way that we do this double life with, with the iWorld. We love to manage our image. We love, this is part of what we do. We sort of say, I want you to see this about me, but I don't want you to see this about me. I mean, one of the most awkward confrontations I've ever had with, with some of my students years back was, you know, they're on my leadership team. This was at a different school. And here I am looking at Facebook and on my feed pops up pictures of them like doing stuff. I'm like, oh, this is happening. Like this happened. And so like I have to go to them and be like, hey, and that's always awkward to say, hey, I saw this on Facebook. Can we talk about it? Because then it's like, why are you checking my Facebook? I'm like, I promise I wasn't stalking you. It just kind of came up in my feed and they were like, sure. Then I'm like, I'm your pastor, so I can do whatever I want. And so, and then I say, it's not true. It's not true. But then I say, but then we have this conversation where, you know, they were trying so hard to manage their image. And it it snuck away from them and the real them popped up. But that's what we do with the eye world is we want to manage our image. And, And sometimes we manage it for our Christian friends and sometimes we manage it for our cool friends. And Jesus is calling, Jesus wants to free you from that double life. And make you a person of integrity. Make you the kind of person that can be the same whether you're at a party or you're at RUF or wherever you are. Make you the same person. A person who knows who they are in Jesus, right? Um, you know, I love the way Jonathan Franzen, who's one of my favorite authors, says it. He, he wrote this piece a couple of weeks back uh, called What's Wrong with the Modern World. 
And he says this about the internet, about the iWorld. He says, one of the worst things, send your hand out. One of the worst things about the internet is that it tempts everyone to be a sophisticate, to take positions of what is hip, and to consider under pain of being considered unhip the positions that everyone else is taking. Um, so not only do we, if, the, if our problem with intimacy is we love control and we're afraid of rejection, our problem with integrity is we love being cool and we're afraid of being holy. And part of what Jesus is, try, is calling you to is to not just know, not to know that intimacy with him leads to intimacy with one another, but to also know that integrity is developed before him. It's developed not by trying to be like Jesus. Listen, if, Jesus is, if you try to have Jesus as your example before Jesus is your savior, it's going to crush you. It's absolutely, and some of you, you're being crushed, which is why you do the double life thing. Is you come, I hope you don't come here and hear me saying, be more like Jesus. Of course, Jesus, of course, at the end of what holiness is, is being more like Jesus. But Jesus never tells you to be like him before he calls you to be with him. And when he calls you to be with him, he says, listen, I can never love you more than I do. And I will never love you less, regardless of what happens. I'm always going to be with you. Faithful, I'm going to love you to the end. Not only to the end of my life, the fascinating thing about that verse is John loves double entendres. And what that verse literally means is two things. It means Jesus loved them to the fullest, meaning Jesus loved his, he loves us to the fullest extent of, that, of which he can love us, which is going to the cross for us, showing us that he loves us so much, he literally loves us to death. But the other thing it means is he loved them to the end. He was faithful. His love, we just sang it, the love of Christ is rich and free. Nothing can make it depart from us. Why? Because he did everything to give it to us. And he's not, Jesus isn't an Indian giver. He doesn't be like, hey, I'm going to give you my love. You do these things. Oh, nope, I'm going to take it from you. Jesus says, I'm going to give you my love and I'm going to love you out of your sins. I'm not going to shame you out of your sins. I'm going to love you into being holy. I'm not going to shame you into being holy. But you can't be like him until you're with him, right? And that leads to integrity. That's what he leads us to. But then this is the last thing I want you to see is the temptation with the eye world is identity. And this is a fascinating one because basically what we're saying is we're always either doing one of two things. We're always either living for an identity and we're trying to build it and we're very careful, especially online, about building the kind of identity that we want people to see. Or we're living from our identity. We're living from the sense of we know who we are and as Christians we know who we are in Christ. I know who I am. I am my beloved my beloved's and my beloved is mine. I am a son of God, a child of God. I, I am part of the bride of Christ. That's how faithful of a husband and caretaker he is. I am Jesus' friend. I know who I am. And I do everything out of that. I do Facebook out of that. I do Twitter out of that. I do Instagram out of that. I do, I do every relationship out of that. Um, Jerron Lanier wrote this fascinating book called You Are Not a Gadget. And his whole thing is he's, he's looking, he's, his particular concern about the eye world is we use the eye world to, to mess that up. We use it to find or create an identity instead of, instead of knowing who we are and sharing who we are in that world. So in other words, he's saying what we do is we go to the eye world to find out who we are instead of knowing who we are in the R world and going to the eye world from that place. If you don't know who you are, the way you do the eye world is you're trying to find an identity so you're desperate. I mean, this is, this is a little bit, you know, some of you know sort of my story of Twitter, but this is a little bit what went wrong with my own Twitter account was I got internet famous, but part of how I got internet famous was 
I loved the persona, and the persona wasn't me, and I loved that, but it was hard to be that person in real life. It was hard to tell jokes because it's hard to tell jokes when you know you're going to be re- rejected because sometimes people don't laugh at your jokes. And so you say them, a friend is someone who laughs at your jokes, and then, but if that's the case, sometimes you say a joke and they don't laugh and they're not your friend, right? But there's this idea of rejection again. And so you can create this persona, how you want people to see you, but the danger is you can't create, like that's your, the internet is not, the internet cannot hold your identity. Only Jesus can. We, we said this a lot this semester, and this is so key to relationships. There's no other person and no other place, no other place, nowhere in the eye world can you, anything bear the weight of your identity as a human being. Jesus alone can. Why? Because he made you. And he made you for himself. But he doesn't just make you, and he doesn't just lord that over you. He serves you. And that's the beautiful thing about this passage. But the question is, do you sort of know your identity? Do you know who you are in Christ? I had this conversation with a friend this week that was fascinating in this regard. We were talking and we were catching up and we were talking about self-control. And self-control has always been something, if you're like me, that you wrestle with. And when you think about the fruit of the Spirit, you can be like love, joy, peace, patience. Not that you have all those things, but then you get to self-control. You're like, oh, am I even a Christian? <laughs> because self-control, I just watched six seasons of something on Netflix. I don't have self-control. And so you're like, you wrestle with that. And he was saying, you know, it's funny how that we as Christians especially have misunderstood and misapplied what self-control is. And it was a fascinating conversation because I never thought about it like this. He said it, I was thinking about it and he said, self-control in our minds is we're going to deny ourselves something. So like, here comes my wife with the Oreos and I'm going to say... No, I'm going to diet. I'm not eating those Oreos. Like, we think that's self-control. Or we think, like, I'm going to get up today and have my, my quiet time with Jesus, and then I'm going to go work out. And we think, if I do that regularly, that's self-control. And if I don't do that, I don't have self-control. But he said if you go back, interestingly, to Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, part of, that's part of self-control. But the bigger part of self-control is refusing, this is fascinating, is refusing to define yourself. And instead, letting Jesus define you. And that is fascinating. Because all of us are busy trying to define ourselves as you complete adjectives. As funny, as smart, as athletic, as the kind of person who is good at your major, as the kind of person who's going to be a, you name it, as the kind of person who is, is in a relationship, as the kind of person who is single. And, and I just watched the, the How I Met Your Mother, The Woo Girl, which is a fascinating episode. Someone who's going to be a woo girl. You know, someone who, you know, you name it. But we're always trying to define ourselves, either positively or negatively. You can define yourself negatively. I'm, I'm the Eeyore. I'm the... But Jesus is saying part of self-control is refusing to define yourself and letting him and him alone define you. And what's fascinating about that is this is the disciples in this passage. Is they want to be rulers and not servants. Because rulers get to say who they are. But servants get to say whose they are. And the reality is, it's not who you are, it's whose you are. Because in the words of Bob Dylan, all of us have to serve somebody. And all of us are serving something. And part of what Jesus is inviting his disciples to is serving him. Because he knows serving him and serving him alone is going to free them to have the fullness of the identity that they were made to have. It's not who you are, but it's whose you are. And the question is, whose are you? Who do you? Who do you belong to? Do you think you belong to yourself? And you get to tell yourself, and Jesus gets to be a consultant, you get to be like a life coach to tell yourself what to do? Or do you belong to Jesus?
And not only does he alone get to tell you what to do, but he alone gets to define you. I'll close with this. So, so the question is, how do we begin to risk? Uh, how do we begin to risk being vulnerable? How, how do we begin to risk entering into intimacy with integrity from an identity we, are, we already have? You see that? How do we begin to do intimacy with integrity from our identity? That's the question. And you'll never be able to do it until you see Jesus in this passage. You never be able to do it. Growing up, I was really into Christian music, and there was this line that I'll never forget from this band called Black Eyed Siva. And they were actually a decent Christian band, which there aren't many. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, I stand by that. Um, Black Eyed Siva, but they had this great line where they said, If God calls you to be a missionary, don't stoop to be a king. If God calls you to be a missionary, don't stoop to be a king. But the, what I love about this passage is Jesus, here's a king. Jesus is a king. He is the king. He's the king of all kings. He makes Game of Thrones look dumb. He's the king. And yet, he stoops to be a missionary. He, he stoops to be a servant. He stoops to serve you. Do you realize that Jesus served you before he saved you? He served you not only in, in living the life you can never live, but he served you in dying the death you deserve to die. He served you... That's why Jesus, when Peter says, when he says to Jesus, listen, I've washed you, therefore you're clean. And he can say that to each one of us. If we belong to him, he's washed us by his blood and he's made us clean, clean forever. But it's not just that. It's also that we can risk vulnerability because Jesus was vulnerable with us. And, and all, everything he gives us with being vulnerable. He gives us everything we need. We have everything. Jesus is enough for us. And when Jesus is enough for us, we can begin to risk being vulnerable with one another. And we can begin saying, I don't need Facebook. I'll do it. It's fun. I don't need it. I don't need 100,000 followers on Twitter. I don't need 80 likes on my Instagram because Jesus is enough for me. Jesus loved me to the extent he made himself vulnerable. Therefore, I can go and be vulnerable with my friends. And I can go enter into the real world knowing that it's going to hurt, but knowing that it's worth it. Uh, if you watch Walking Dead this week, and I'll, I'll close with this. There's a fascinating line in Walking to the Suite where Beth, who's become my favorite character, she's the middle daughter of Herschel the farmer. But she had that great line when she, her, you know, her boyfriend, well, I don't want to spoil it for you, but she just went through something hard relationally. She has this great line in the, in the episode, I'm not going to spoil it, where she says, when you care about someone, hurt is kind of part of the package. When you care about someone, hurt is part of the package. Which is exactly what Lewis said, and I'll close with that. C.S. Lewis said this. He said it this way. He said, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with, with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless... It will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that that is the way you love us and did love us. Lord, I pray that you would free us to follow you, to be, uh, to be followers of you in this way, where we do relationship in a way that we know it's risky, we know we're going to face hurt and rejection, but it's worth it. Because you decided that we were worth it. And Lord, I pray that you would free us. You give us grace for all the places and forgive us for the places where we've made life all about us. And I pray that by your grace you would help us to make life.
all about you and all about one another. We pray these things for Christ in your name. Amen. Your door.